0: I'm sure you have probably noticed how our culture and society has in many ways determined that love means not having any standards or rules or guidelines. For example, some counselors or therapists would say that it is unloving to thwart your child by having any rules or guidelines in your home. If if little Johnny wants to saw the leg off the dining room table, you should let him. Otherwise, you might warp his little psyche, which would be unloving. But it doesn't stop there. Many in our society think it is unloving to require children to learn how to read or learn how to write or learn how to add and subtract. The loving thing, they say, is simply to pass the children right on through the grades and then let them graduate. If you have any standards that are upheld, then you are considered unloving. We face this same thing as a church ministry. Because we have certain expectations in various aspects of ministry, we are sometimes branded as unloving. For instance, if we ask people to clean up after their event in the church or in, a, in one of the rooms, some people consider that unloving. If we concur with our insurance requirements that people who work with our children should go through a simple check of some kind, we are branded as unloving. It just seems to be the atmosphere of our day. For many today, even in the body of Christ, love means not having any standards or rules or convictions or guidelines whatsoever. Or to say it another way, if you really love someone and he doesn't like the fact that there are standards or guidelines, then you will lower them or throw them out. I think about that perspective every time I read in Mark 10... About the conversation Jesus had with the rich young ruler. This young man asked Jesus what he needed to do to have eternal life. And Mark tells us that Jesus loved this man. Yet when the young man walked away, unwilling to do what Jesus required, Jesus didn't run after him, Jesus didn't apologize for what he said. Jesus did not respond with the comment, oh, I'm so sorry that I offended you. I'm so sorry that you're uncomfortable with the standard. I'll just lower it or throw it out because I really love you. Jesus did nothing of the sort. Jesus said nothing of the sort. He let the young man walk away. We consider that story last Lord's Day, and we're going to return to it again this morning, To see what Jesus had to say about it after the fact. So turn with me to Mark chapter 10 in your Bible if you are not already there. And please follow along as I read verses 17 through 27. Though our focus will be on verses 23 through 27. Mark chapter 10 verse 17. Now as Jesus was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him, and asked him, Good teacher... What shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. And he answered and said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, One thing you lack. Go your way, sell whatever you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross, and follow me. But he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were greatly astonished, saying among themselves, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God, all things are possible. We consider this story in some detail in the last message. It is a crucial story to understand because it teaches so much about the true nature of saving faith, the true nature of the human heart, and the way Jesus went about the task of presenting the way of salvation to people. He didn't lower the standard just because people didn't like it. He didn't compromise the message just because it would be unpopular. The first thing he sought to do with this young man was to get him to see his sinfulness. He wants to know if the man has an accurate realization of his sinfulness, and that's why he pointed this man to the commandments. He wants to know if the man realizes how short he falls of God's standard. He wants to know if the man understands that he is a sinner who needs grace and forgiveness. He wants to know if this man is humble and broken before God because of his sin. The way the man eventually responded answered all of those questions. Verse 19, Jesus said, You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. You see, Jesus is trying to get this man to see his sin, but he didn't get through. Because in verse 20, he answered and said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. He was refusing to see that hate is tantamount to murder and lust is tantamount to adultery. This man doesn't see that he is a sinner. And if a person doesn't realize he is a sinner, he is in no position for salvation. You can't be saved if you don't understand you're lost. You can't be forgiven if you don't see that you need forgiveness. You can't receive salvation if you don't admit that you are a sinner. The Lord can do, this may sound like a strange statement, but the Lord can do nothing for the person who doesn't see his or her true spiritual That's why Jesus made the comment in Matthew 9, 12, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And then he added, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. When he said that, he was not implying that anyone is righteous in and of himself or herself, or that there are those who don't need to repent. No, he is saying he came to call those who recognize that they need to repent. This man didn't recognize that he needed to repent. He assumed he was spiritually well and whole and pure and healthy. He refused to see the true condition of his heart. So Jesus brought out the condition of his heart by telling the young man to sell everything, give it to the poor, and Jesus said, come, follow me. Now we know from many, many passages of Scripture that this is not a requirement for salvation. Nowhere else does Jesus say this, so we know that he was not teaching salvation by philanthropy. And there is no other statement anywhere in the New Testament that suggests it either, which begs the question, why did Jesus say it here? He said it here because Jesus knew what issue was holding this man back. Jesus knew this man's heart, and he knew what would demonstrate his unwillingness to complete submission. So Jesus said, in essence, if you want eternal life, if you want salvation, then you must come on my terms. But this man wasn't willing. It's, it's one of the most shocking stories in the Gospels. He came to Jesus for eternal life, and he left without it. He walked away a lost, condemned, damned man who had been given the opportunity to have eternal life. And unless he later repented of his sins and surrendered his life to Christ, he died without salvation, one of the wealthiest men in the cemetery. A lot of good his wealth did him when he stepped into eternity. This interaction that Jesus had with this young man and the the, the young man's response prompted Jesus to teach his disciples some very important lessons for their own lives and for their own ministries. That's where we pick up the story this morning as we move into verses 23 and following. Notice what happened after this shocking story. <clears throat> Verse 23, then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. Beloved, you cannot imagine, I, I, I have no hesitancy saying this, you cannot imagine how shocking this statement would have been to the disciples. You see, the Jews believed, and the disciples were all Jewish, very Jewish, the disciples, the Jews believed that everyone who was rich was rich because God was so pleased with him. Therefore, of all people, the wealthy had the greatest chance to enter the kingdom of heaven. Their view was that if the rich weren't going to make it in, no one would make it in. So Jesus dropped a bomb on his disciples when he said how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. What makes it hard for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God? Is it because God is prejudiced against the rich? That God is somehow against the wealthy? Obviously not. The reason why it is hard for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God is because of one phrase, self-sufficiency. It is very easy for people who are wealthy or people who are extremely competent or who are very capable to be self-sufficient. It's very easy for them to approach eternal life the same way they approach all of life, with the attitude that says, I can do this, I can accomplish that. I can make it happen. I can get her done. But when it comes to the issue of salvation and eternal life, no one can get her done. We cannot obtain eternal life on our own, no matter how capable, no matter how competent, no matter how accomplished, how wealthy. In fact, the more capable and competent and accomplished someone is, the harder it is for him or her to humble himself like a little child to enter the kingdom of heaven. This is why Paul said what he did over in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Go to the right, a few books of the Bible to 1 Corinthians. Pass the Gospels, Acts, and Romans to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This is basically an expansion of what Jesus was saying there in Mark 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, Paul says, For you see your calling, or consider your calling, brethren. Notice this, is what he's saying. Notice, you, you notice this, you're aware of this. Notice that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world, and the things which are despised God has chosen, and the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no flesh should glory in his presence. Now be careful how you read these verses. Notice that God does not say in this text, not any mighty, not any noble are called. He says not many. It's just as wrong to be prejudiced or discriminatory against high-class people as it is to be prejudiced or discriminatory against low-class people. Both are equally wrong. So don't take this text the wrong way and develop a bad attitude toward people who are wealthy or people who are accomplished or people who are in positions of prominence, etc., God does call people into his family from every strata of society. But those who come to Christ must realize and acknowledge that their status in this world, their accomplishments in this world, whatever it may be, has absolutely nothing to do with their salvation in Christ. In fact, most of the time, it's a hindrance. It's a hindrance because most people who have a lot going for them, who have a lot in this world, usually don't see their need for a Savior. It is the feeling of inadequacy that makes people aware that they have need and often draws them to the gospel. But people with a lot going for them in life seldom sense need, so position, or power, or wealth, or notoriety, or popularity is often a hindrance. It's also a hindrance because to come into the family of God, one must humble himself and recognize that he can do nothing to save himself. He can't gain salvation by his position, or by his money, or by his intelligence, or by his strength, or by his nobility, or by his education, or by anything in himself. That is extremely difficult to accept for those who are the elite in society in one way or another. The highly accomplished. But those who are willing to humble themselves and come to Christ by faith as a little child are graciously received into the family of God. So Paul does not say, not any. He says, not many. Paul himself is a good example. Paul was an incredible man in many ways. He ranks among the greatest ever to live, even prior to his conversion. He was brilliant, a a, a mind like a steel trap. But in Philippians 3, 7, Paul said, What things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Indeed, I count all things loss for the excellency or the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. That's the kind of attitude necessary in the life of someone who is especially gifted, especially talented, intelligent, wealthy, etc. And then Paul says here in verse 30, as he continues this topic, he says, But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. Notice how this verse begins. It says, But of him you are in Christ Jesus. So the natural question is of whom? Of whom? The answer is God the Father. Paul has been talking about God the Father throughout this section. Two times in verse 27, he says, God has chosen. He says it again in verse 28, God has chosen. The emphasis is on what God does and what God has done. That emphasis continues here in verse 30 when Paul says, but of him you are in Christ Jesus. In other words, let me say it clearly, the reason you are in Christ Jesus is because of God. God did this. You didn't do it yourself. You you and I aren't better than anyone else. We aren't better than those who are not in Christ. Don't take credit for your salvation. Don't think you are wiser or smarter or more prudent or more rational or more discerning than others because you are in Christ and they are not. Sometimes you hear that attitude coming through. A person might be sharing his or her testimony, and, they, and of course, it could just be wording. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's pride, but it, it, can, it can be a reflection of pride when you hear someone say, but finally, you know, I just, I, I, I became smarter than everyone else around me, and I chose Christ, or something like that. No, if you think that way, then you are glorying in your own wisdom as if it were your wisdom that led you to be in Christ, but that's not true. Paul is so clear here that the reason you and I are in Christ is because God worked in our hearts to bring us to Christ. So God is the one who is the source of why you and I are in Christ and how we came to be in Christ. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Even our faith is a gift from God. That's why Paul words this Verse the way he does here in verse 30. He doesn't want Christians thinking that something within ourselves is the reason why we are in Christ. How ludicrous we would be if we hear Paul's words in this passage about God calling insignificant people into his family and then turn around and believe it was something in us that caused God to call us. Listen, beloved, nothing in us caused God to call us Are you ready for this? Not even our insignificance. Nothing. So Paul says here in verse 30, but of Him you are in Christ. God is the source and cause of our being in Christ. He is the reason we are in Christ. And we must remember that or else not only can we easily develop a pride that somehow we did it, we were smarter, we were wiser, etc., we can also develop a very condescending uh, attitude toward unsaved people. You know, look down our noses at them like somehow we're better than, than they are. We're not any better. The difference is that God brought us in Christ It's crucial that we understand that because, as verse 29 says, no flesh should glory in His presence. When we glory in what the Lord has done for us, we don't do it in a way that implies that there's some reason within us why He has done it. It's all Him. So verse 31 says, that is, uh, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. This is a quote out of Jeremiah 9:23 and 24. Paul just pulls part of that text out. The full text of this quote reads this way. Thus says the Lord Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glories, glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these I delight, says the Lord. So if you want to glory in something, Don't glory in what you perceive to be your own abilities or your own achievements or your own wisdom. Glory in the fact that the Lord has opened your heart and eyes to be able to know Him. Glory in the fact that He has brought you to the place in life where you are willing to humble yourself before Him to enter into His family. Glory in the fact that He has granted you repentance and faith to believe in Jesus Christ. If you're going to glory, glory in the Lord. It's all of Him and nothing of ourselves, which is why Mark recorded Jesus saying, How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. Now let's go back to that text in Mark chapter 10. Because the Jewish people believed that riches were an automatic sign of God's favor, the disciples were stunned at what Jesus said in verse 23. When he, when he said how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God, that simply did not compute with them. And you see in verse 24 the reaction. And the disciples were astonished at his words. That's a strong term there. Read that with With strength. They were, use whatever contemporary expression you want to use, they were blown away. They they couldn't accept this. They couldn't believe it. They were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. Now understand that Jesus wasn't merely saying that it's hard, he was actually saying it's impossible as we'll see in the next verse. Salvation is impossible for anyone and everyone on his own. That's the point to which Jesus wanted to bring his men in their understanding. He wanted them to get this. They were the ones who would be the leaders and the teachers and the messengers after Jesus went back to the Father. The ministry was going to be left to them. So it was absolutely crucial for them to have a clear and accurate understanding of salvation because nothing is more important than that. It was essential for them to be convinced that no one can be saved on his own. No one can be saved by his own merits or by his own strength or by his own doing or by his own efforts or by his own achievements, by his own wealth. Salvation is only possible by the grace of God. Salvation is the work of God, not the work of man. So in verse 25, we read Jesus pressing the point. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus kept pressing the point because he knew that this was was too much of a contradiction in the minds of the disciples for them to hear it and accept it and understand it. They wouldn't get it the first time. They wouldn't hear it. They wouldn't embrace it. Therefore, he said it again in another way here in this verse. He made the point even stronger by saying, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. That was a way of saying that it's impossible. It's impossible. And take this verse just as it's read. I'm sure some of you have heard that tradition, which isn't true, by the way, that there was a a gate in Jerusalem's wall called the eye of a needle, and for a camel to get through it, he had to kneel down and crawl through. So Jesus was saying, you've got to kneel down and crawl through. Listen, they were smart enough to make the gate tall enough for a camel. There was no such thing. That's just a tradition that's developed over time. There's no such thing. This was just a literal statement by Jesus. The Persians expressed impossibility by saying it would be easier to put an elephant through the eye of a needle. That was the Persian way of saying it. So this was a Jewish colloquial adaptation of that expression denoting impossibility. Since the Jews didn't have elephants in their land, they picked the largest animal they had to make the same point. Jesus' use of this illustration was to explicitly say, that salvation by human effort is impossible. It is wholly, completely, by God's grace. So Jesus was utterly contradicting the teaching of his day and the view of his day. The Jewish people believed that you could earn salvation by giving alms to the poor, and that's why the wealthy person had such an advantage he could give way more than anyone else. He could basically, though they maybe wouldn't feel comfortable saying it this way, he could basically buy his way into the kingdom of heaven. But Jesus shocked his disciples by saying that salvation is actually impossible for the rich man. That's why they responded the way they did in the next verse. Again, notice the, the shock. And they were greatly astonished, saying among themselves, Who then can be saved? To the disciples' way of thinking, what Jesus was saying here, close the door to everyone. Everyone. If a a rich man can't get in with his ability to give alms, well, then everyone's doomed. Nobody has a chance. It's It's a closed door, slammed shut. Of course, the assumption behind their thinking was that salvation can be earned. It can be earned by works or by good deeds or by giving to the poor. By the way, that's always, understand this, that's always the prevalent view among people. It's always the view, worldwide. Let me illustrate this here in our own culture. Let's say you ask someone the question Do you know with certainty that you are going to heaven when you die? That's a legitimate question for people to wrestle with in life, the most important issue to wrestle with in life. A common response to that question is this, well, well, no one can say with certainty that he's going to heaven when he dies. It would be prideful to make such a claim. It would be presumptuous to make such a claim. At first, that sounds like a humble answer. But in reality, it reveals that the person believes in works, salvation. You see, if salvation is earned, if we do it, then it would be prideful to make such a claim. It would be presumptuous. However, because salvation is a gracious gift given by God to the repentant, believing sinner, there is no pride, there is no presumption in saying, I know with absolute certainty that I'm going to heaven when I die. But the disciples didn't have a grasp on this yet. They... This, This was too counter-cultural, too counter-theology in their mind. This is counter to their belief system, which is why Jesus was really driving home this message. Verse 27, but Jesus looked at them and said, with men, it is impossible. Remember, they had just said basically, who can be saved? It's impossible. Nobody's getting in. If the rich don't get in, nobody's getting in. And Jesus said, you know, you're right. With men, it is impossible. It is, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. Salvation is humanly impossible for anyone, for rich or poor. There is a sense in which it's more difficult for those who are very competent because they tend to rely on themselves and they tend to be unwilling to humble themselves. But salvation is impossible for anyone, apart from from the work of God in a person's heart. All of us, regardless of our status in life, all of us tend to minimize our sin and not see it as terrible as it really is. We don't naturally see the true condition of our hearts. So apart from God's work in our hearts, salvation is impossible for all of us. That's what Jesus wanted his men to grasp. That's what Jesus wanted his disciples to get a hold of because how could they possibly proclaim the message of salvation if they didn't have it clear in their own minds? If they didn't really get it, then they wouldn't be very good messengers. How could they accurately represent the Lord Jesus and his salvation if they weren't completely convinced that there is no other way for men and women to be saved apart from the sovereign grace of God? Listen, if you don't really believe that, then you end up obscuring the message or soft-peddling the message. What I mean is, if you aren't completely convinced in your heart and mind and soul that men and women cannot save themselves, then you won't take a strong enough stand on the total depravity of mankind and the worthlessness of religious works. This is why the world of religion And the world of Christianity is in such a mess today. This is it. This is at the heart of it. This is at the root. People refuse to believe what Jesus said in the Gospels, and they refuse to believe what the apostles said in the rest of the New Testament. Namely, that we are sinners by birth, by nature, by choice, and by practice. Therefore, we deserve damnation. We deserve judgment. We deserve condemnation. And there is nothing we can do about our predicament on our own. We can't make up for our sinfulness by trying to be nice, by going to church, by putting money in the offering plate, by being a religious person. But this is what most people in our world believe. Mark it. There's no doubt about it. This is what most people in our world believe. They believe that their sin against God isn't that bad. So they have the ability to make up for it by being religious in some way. And mark it. It's not only people in other religions out there somewhere who believe such things. So do people in the Christian religion. I don't think it would be an overstatement to say that most people in our country, there are exceptions, certainly, but most people in our country who go to church do so because they believe that it will help them achieve or earn or merit salvation with God. It's a works-based system that is in their minds. It's a merit system that's in the back of their thinking. They believe that by going to church and doing religious stuff, that will increase their chances of making it into heaven. It's really not that different than what the Jews of Jesus' day believed. Think about it. It's basically the same thing. They believed that the more money you had, the greater chance you had of making it into the kingdom of heaven. People today believe that the more religion you have, Or the more religious works you have, the greater chance you have of making it into the kingdom of heaven. Of course, they aren't going to completely deny the grace of God. Think about this. It's sort of a combination in their minds. You do the best you can, and however much you fall short, God will make up the rest because He is a God of love. And with that, we are right back to where we started the message. Right back to the beginning. People wrongly believe that because God is a God of love, he will just sort of lower the standard. He'll wink at our mistakes. He'll just kind of, you know, turn a blind eye. The prevailing attitude is this. All you have to do is do your best Just give it your best, and because God is love, He will make up for what you lack in meeting the standard to get into the kingdom of heaven. That's the prevailing attitude. But Jesus totally shatters that view with His words here. Totally. Our wrongs in life are not merely mistakes, missteps. They are grievous sins before a holy God. We are so tainted and so stained with sin that there is absolutely nothing we can do to make up for our offenses. We cannot earn our salvation or achieve salvation or merit salvation. So let's ask the same question the disciples asked. Who then can be saved? Who's got a chance? Who can make it in? No one. With men, salvation is impossible. Our only hope is the grace of God. That's what Jesus wanted to make sure that his disciples understood. He wanted to make sure it was crystal clear in their minds so they would be clear in the message they proclaimed to others. And that's what Jesus wanted this rich young ruler to accept in his own heart and mind, but he walked away. So what about you? Where are you in all of this? Do you understand and are you convinced that there is absolutely nothing whatsoever you can do to earn salvation or achieve it or merit it? Do you see the awfulness of your sin before a holy God and the utter impossibility of doing anything religious that can make up for it? Is your trust completely and solely and exclusively in the grace of God that is found in Jesus Christ? Have you repented of your sins and received Him as your own Lord and Savior? There's no other way to enter the kingdom of God. Whatever you do, don't leave here this morning with the assumption that some religious work can get it done for you—that is a lie from the pit of hell—and this is what is this is what is prevailing in society today. My wife and I were watching a little documentary yesterday on some the the, the famous story of grizzly attacks in up in uh, Glacier Park a number of years ago and found it not shocking but just in a sense again reinforcing this prevailing attitude that as one of the gals who was who was dying from the grizzly attack there was someone that came up to her and said here give me some water i need to baptize her before she dies as if that's going to make any difference whatsoever but that's the prevailing attitude just you know Think, do your best, and make sure you get some check-the-box religious deed, you know, join the church, take communion, get baptized, do something, and you're good to go. Jesus disagrees. Jesus utterly disagrees with what he says here. I hope you will believe Jesus and not religion. Your eternal destiny is at stake. Let's bow together as we close. As you bow your head and close your eyes this morning contemplating what you have heard Jesus say to His disciples. It's one thing to think about the prevailing attitude out there and what religion is, but really what you need to just center in on is, where do you stand? Where are you in all of this? Are you convinced that there is nothing whatsoever you can do to earn salvation and achieve salvation? Or merit salvation? Do you see the awfulness of your sin and the impossibility of doing anything religious that can make up for it? Is your trust completely and solely and exclusively in the grace of God that is found in Jesus Christ? Those are the most important questions you can ever ask and answer rightly, properly. Properly. Are you trusting in Jesus Christ and Him alone for your salvation? Nothing in yourself. Nothing in your religion. Nothing in your works. Father, we confess because of the pridefulness of our human hearts that we want to contribute to our salvation. We want to think it's something in us or something we can do. And yet we hear so clearly what Jesus is saying in this passage, that it is, it is completely impossible. It, it is impossible with men, but not with you. So may we abandon any, any self-trust, any religious trust, and look solely to the Lord Jesus Christ, completely and wholly to the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you would strip from us any, any idea, thought of human accomplishment, human achievement, human merit. Even as, as your children, as believers, it's easy for us to be fuzzy on this and not think clearly, even after you've brought us to faith in Christ. So give us clarity so that our, our, our message to the lost is clear and accurate and so that our appreciation for our salvation is true and full and rich as it ought to be. And Father, in closing, we want to pray for anyone hearing these words and surely, surely there are some who have believed the lie that they, that they can do something about their salvation. That they just need to do their best and then Because you are a God of love, you'll just overlook the rest and wink at it and turn a blind eye and not make it a big deal. Father, may Jesus' words here shatter that lie from hell they have embraced so that they would turn from self, turn from religion to the Lord Jesus Christ in whose name we pray, amen.